want you to turn to your neighbor this morning. I want you to say, it's time to move on. Say, it's time to move on. It's time to move on. It, it, Christmas is done. You guys have gotten through the holidays. You made it pay, past your crazy uncle. Successfully, you are still alive after encountering your brothers and sisters-in-law and all that good stuff. You did not die of uh, food poisoning. None of you are in a food coma at the moment, I hope. Or this is this is going to be a long, excruciating sermon if you're if you're still you got your food hangover on. Uh, but it, it's time to look forward to the new year. And there are a lot of people in the room right now, and I could point to some of you, but I'm going to choose not to. I'm going to let your spouses elbow you when I say this. But there are some of you out there that are planners, and some of you are planning. Not only are you planning, you're like, no, no you you are not just planning 2016. No, no, no. No, no, no. You are planning 2016, 17, 18, and 19 right now because it's the new year and you're getting your budget together and you're getting your five-year plan together and you're breaking out your spreadsheets and you're breaking out your Word documents and you're typing up your paragraphs. So you guys are planning to the nth degree because it's the new year. And so I got a word for you today that I want you to, I want you to take and I want you to put into uh, your new year's planning. I want you to filter what you're planning through this word. As it's time to move on to a new year, as it's time to move on to what God has for us in 2016, as you plan and as you prepare, I want us to move on the right way. It's important how we move on, not just that we move on. You see what I'm saying? It's important how we move on. And so for you planners, I want to submit to you today uh, a few things just to where you'll plan a little bit differently maybe, and you'll plan according to what God is doing in your life. And then there's another group of people in the room and I fall into this group a lot of times, and I, I'm, I'm labeling them today. I'm, I'm labeling people, even though Pastor Justin told us not to do that. I am labeling. There's another group of people in the room, and they're called powder kegs. And what they're doing is they're just waiting for an event to happen, and then they just go for it. They're just waiting on, on life to happen to them. And so even for the powder kegs, this word is for you. So you got planners, you got powder kegs. Everybody's moving into the new year. It's time for all of us to move on. Everybody say move on. Move on. I'm going to read a scripture to you, and this is where we're going to be camping out all morning, so just get ready. And you've probably heard this story before. If you haven't, it's going to be really, really awesome. But um, even if you've heard this story, I want you to hear it with fresh ears. I want you to read this historical account with fresh ears. And it's Genesis 16, and we're going to start in verse 1. And this is, a, this is a, an account of Abram and Sarai, and eventually their names get changed. We know that to Abraham and Sarah, but right now they're Abram and Sarai, so let's read this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai had said. And so after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, everybody say 10 years. Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to his husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar. She conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands. Abram said, do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring outside uh, that is beside the road to Shur, and he, she, he said, Hagar, Slave of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Then the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much 
that they will be too numerous to count. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, God has a plan. And turn to your other neighbor and say, God has a part, or I have a part. I have a part. God has a plan, and I have a part. We just read this account, and there's a whole lot in there, and we can't unpack the entire thing today, but we're going to try to get as far into it as we can because there's so much going on in this scripture. And, and the first thing that I want to point out to you is this, and I want us to leave here knowing this, and this is something that we hear frequently inside these walls here, but you never know what people around you are going through. You just never know. In this, in this account right here, Hagar had no idea what Sarai was going, going through. The, the Lord had come to Abram, Sarai's husband, 10 years earlier and said, Abram, I'm going to make you the father of a nation. You're going to have so many descendants that you can't even count them. And that promise had been made 10 years ago, and here Sarai stands, and she can't deliver. She can't conceive. She can't make happen what God said was going to happen. And so she's extremely frustrated. And she's at a point where she is ready to move on, and she's ready to do whatever it takes to move on because she is burdened because she can't produce what she feels like she's supposed to produce. And then you've got Hagar sitting there thinking, you know what, Sarai is used to having everything together in her life. She's used to being able to take care of her own problems. Abram and Sarai were of the elite class. They, were not, they weren't servants. They had servants. And so Hagar's sitting there going, she's got it all together. What is her problem? How can she possibly have anything wrong? She's got all the money in the world. She's got you know, the house that she needs. She's got all this livestock. She's got this promise from the Lord. Everything is peachy in her life. What is she complaining about? I want to tell you right now, you have no idea the burdens that people are carrying because some people are really, really great at hiding their burdens. And some people think they have to put on a happy face and hide like Sarai was doing for years and years. And finally she snapped and she said, I've got to do something about that. But you never know what people are actually going through. And you read this story and it's like the real housewives of Canaan or something. And, and you see it, it's like, this is real stuff. This is real stuff. I mean, if you don't think the Bible is interesting, go back and read the story we just read. This is something that really happened. You know, this is, you, you can't make this stuff up. It's, it's so real. And Sarai's appearance was that she had everything together, but we see in the story she got frustrated and she decided to take matters into their own hands. And, you know, I think Hagar probably had a notion that Sarai had it all together, and we have this notion a lot of times that God only uses people who have it all together. And I don't know, I don't know what Bible you read, but the Bible that I read, I don't see that at all. God uses messed up, broken, distracted, disjointed people all the time. He takes disconnected people and connects them to his character. And the next thing you know, they're setting the world on fire with what they do. That's what God does. And so here you've got broken people everywhere. You've got Sarai, she's broken because she can't conceive. You've got Hagar, she's broken because she's about to be forced to do something that she didn't ask for. And God's about to use these messed up, broken people. And there's something neat that I want you to catch in God's word. I'm going to come down here for a second. Here's the deal, because I want to look you out. I want to tell you something. When God is doing something big, sometimes it gets messy. When God is doing something big, sometimes it gets messy. I'll walk home from work sometimes, and I'll come up into my house and get attacked by an army of children, first of all. And then when I recover from that, I'll walk into the kitchen sometimes, 
and my wife will be in there, and she's got every dish that we own. I think she probably went down to my grandma's house and borrowed some of her dishes, and there's whipped cream everywhere, and there's sugar, and there's stuff all over the place, and it's a mess, and it's a mess, and it looks like just World War III is taking place sometimes when I walk up in there. But you know what? When I walk up in there and it looks like that, you know what? I get excited. You know why? Because that mess means that there's something awesome about to take place in my mouth. And when I walk home and I see that mess, I know my tummy is about to be happy. And we're about to have a good night at the Buckner house because that mess means that something big is stirring and something big is being created. And I want to tell you right now, when you walk up into your life and you look around and, you see, and it looks like a mess sometimes and it looks like you don't have it all together, that's awesome because you know what? God is cooking up something big for your life. He's cooking up something big. He's going to deliver you into something that is absolutely awesome. If you will just hang on and enjoy the mess, take time to enjoy the mess because God uses messes to make masterpieces all the time. That's what he does. That's what he does. That's who he is. Everybody say, I'm a mess. But God makes masterpieces. Mm. I'm going to preach to somebody this morning. Oh, my gosh. The only way, the only way we get to discover this attribute of the Father, though, is if we move on. If we move on. If we get outside of ourselves and we move on. And if we get into life and we run every time that we see a mess happen, we will miss out on what God's masterpiece is for us. If we run every time stuff looks bad, if we run, but Zach, I lost my job this year. But Zach, I lost my mom. I lost my dad this year. I lost my grandma this year. But Zach, my car got repoed this week. But Zach, I didn't have the best gifts to put under my Christmas tree for my kids this year. But Zach, I don't, I don't make a lot of money. But I'm considered blue collar and I'm not white collar. Move on. Move on. God's making a masterpiece out of you. It doesn't matter what the world defines success as. It doesn't matter if you look successful by what the world deems successful. God is making a masterpiece out of you if you will let him move you on. So no matter what wants to hold you back from moving on to be the dad or the son or the boss or the employee that you need to be, I want to tell you, embrace the mess. Let God do what he needs to do. Those things are just speed bumps and they're just roadblocks and none of that stuff hinders the Lord, the God of all creation, from doing what he needs to do. Lord, forgive us when we feel like these roadblocks hinder you. God's not sitting up in heaven going, well, you didn't get a raise this year. Guess I'm out of luck. Not going to be able to bless your family. How much do we trust God in these situations to move us where we need to be moved? How much do we trust him? All of those things are just part of the process. They are part of the process. But something I want you to hear, and I hate it when, I hate it when preachers do this, but I'm going to do it like 15 times a day. All of that is just part of the process, but it doesn't affect the promise. Can I get an amen? Pastor Justin's soul is dying down here because I'm using alliteration. But I'm telling, it's so true. I want you to remember this. I want you to be able to hang on to this. No matter what the process looks like, It doesn't matter what it looks like. The promise is still the same. Sarah wanted to take matters in her own hands because the process started to look a little bit different than she imagined that it would look. I'm sorry I'm yelling. I'm passionate about this. But here's the deal. That didn't change God's promise. Just because it looks different 
doesn't mean God has changed a single bit. The process doesn't change the promise. And so I want to challenge you this year, forget about the process. Embrace the process. But hold on to the promise of God. Read his word over and over and over and over and over again and see what he's done for people that were broken and messed up over and over. It's who he is. It's who he is. It's what God does. Something I want to point out about this this account, as we read through it, I think in our Americanized eyes, we read this account differently because we read it and we go, oh my goodness, I cannot believe Abram did that. I can't believe Abram slept with his slaves so that they could could conceive a child. And I can't believe Sarai suggested that he would do that. But I want to point out to you that this was not culturally unacceptable in this day. This was pretty normal. It was pretty normal. It was a common solution to this, this type of problem. It was not uh, out of line. It was not even, it wasn't even against, it wasn't against the law. It was not faux pas at all. This was a common thing, very culturally. But I want to tell you something. When you're trying to move on and you're trying to move forward in your life, I want to tell you that what's common culturally is not necessarily the right thing. What's common culturally is not necessarily the right thing. Just because your solution makes sense doesn't mean that it's the right solution. Sometimes we are called to hang out and wait on God's promise in a different way. And so when we try to do things and we go, you know what, it makes sense. It would make sense that I did this because, you know, this is the easy thing. And a lot of people do this. And so this must be the answer to my problem. This must be the solution to my problem. And we do what's common culturally But even though it's okay with culture, it doesn't mean it's okay with God. Because I I, I feel like, from, from what I read about the Father, he's waiting on us to trust him so often and, and not go out and do things on our own. You know, Abram is 85 years old at this point, and I, I went to school here in Tennessee, but I think 75 plus 10 is 85. And so he's 85 years old, 10 years has passed, And God showed up 10 years before and said, Abram, check out the stars. You see all those stars? Can you count them? Nope. I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than that right there. And so he's been hanging on. How many of you guys have been hanging on to something that the Lord has told you, and it's not come to pass yet, and you're starting to give up on it? Hang on. Hang on. If God is trying to develop something in you, hang on. Because it's worth it to hang on. Nothing's happened yet to Sarai and Abram. They've not conceived yet. And so they decided to take matters into their own hands. And like I told you earlier, Sarai was able, for the most part, to fix her own problems. She was used to being able to fix her own problems with her status or, or with what she was provided with. She was used to being able to take care of herself. But there was something right here that she could not take care of herself. This was beyond her control. This situation was beyond her control. And so she decided to do something and to take it into her own hands. And I want to tell you that when we decide to come up with our own solutions, people get hurt. When we decide that our solution is better and that my idea is better than God's idea, people will get hurt every single time. There is, there's no question about it. And so here's what's happening. Sarai is frustrated, and Hagar is about to get hurt. Hagar is about to be 
burdened with something she didn't ask for. She didn't get a vote in it. They didn't call a family meeting and invite her in. Nothing. She was told what she was going to do, and she had to do it. And here's the problem with that. Sarai was trying to do the right thing the wrong way. My mom used to say this thing to me all the time, and it, and it, oh my goodness, it burned me up, and mom's probably going to listen to this podcast, so I love you, mother, but this used to irritate me. Um, my mom, I would, we had chores at our house, and everybody had chores, and of course, I got the most chores, you know, my brother and sister, they just had piddly chores, and I got the most chores. That's what it always feels like, right? No, but we all had chores, and so it, Saturday, it was chore day. We woke up. Didn't watch cartoons, buddy. We got right to doing chores. So I was, you know, mine was like folding laundry and, you know, loading the dishwasher and all this stuff. And I remember one Saturday morning in particular, I was having a bit of trouble with my attitude. And oftentimes my mother would help me adjust that attitude in, in various ways, various and sundry methods were used. Um, and so I, I was loading the dishwasher and I was just like, go to I'd rather be watching Looney Tunes right now and Porky Pig's on and I'm missing it and Transformers is next and Thundercats Ho is after that and I'm missing it. I'm preaching right now. And, and I'm doing the job and I'm, I'm getting it done very quickly. But my mother walks into the kitchen and she stares at me into the depths of my soul. And she's like, Zach, I'm going to teach you something right now. And I remember it to this day. So good job, mom. What you do is not the only thing that's important. How you do it is just as important. You can do the right thing the wrong way. We can start our relationship off with God and get down the road and start thinking that we have to do enough stuff and we have to produce enough stuff and we have to help God out in his plan and we have to make stuff happen and we can be doing the right stuff and we can be checking off the check boxes but doing it completely the wrong way. And if you look through scripture, I see that God is more concerned with our heart than he is what we do. Because if our heart is right, we're gonna get the stuff done that we're supposed to get done. Jesus didn't say, go, go obey all my commandments and then love me. He said, if you love me, then you will obey my commandments. God is not a God of checklists. He is a God of relationship. And in this story, he's asking Sarah, do you trust me or do you not? You're doing the right thing the wrong way. It is possible to get to your destination in life and to accomplish what you're supposed to accomplish, but do it in completely the wrong way. If you're building a business and you're just stepping over the top of people and you're running over people and you're not concerned with them to make it to the top, you may make it to the top, but you're going to make it in the wrong way. And you're going to be left at the top with nothing to show for it at the end of your life. If you're raising kids in your household and you're raising them on rules and they don't understand the heart of who you are and why you care about them, they're going to understand rules, but by the time they get out of your house, all they're going to be doing is operating out of fear and not out of love, and so it's just going to mess them up, and they're going to make the wrong decisions. We can do the right stuff the wrong way. And then you got, I mean, you got guys like David in the Bible who did everything wrong. 
You write it down on the wrong list, and David probably did it. But what did God say about him? He's a man after my own heart. Wow. He's the one. He's the one that I made king. He's the one that I put on the throne. I didn't put his brothers on the throne that looked like they were supposed to be kings. I put David on the throne because I know he's a man after my own heart. Sarah's solution to the problem seemed logical, and it seemed normal, and it was acceptable. And here's the problem with her solution. Her solution was not rooted, Pastor Justin, in submission. Her solution was not rooted in submission, so there's a problem immediately, right off the bat. Her solution was rooted in what she thought was right, not what God thought was right. And solutions without submission leads to sabotage. Come on. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Solutions without submission every time, every time in my life that I thought my way was better, I have messed it up badly. Not a little bit, badly. There was, there was something I heard one time that was really, really cool, and it is so right, and it's this, and it speaks to solutions without, with, without submission, at least to sabotage, and it's that the only thing harder than waiting on God is wishing that you had. The only thing harder than waiting on God is wishing that you had. Anytime I try to force something, we got, sometimes I'm a forcer, and I like to force my way through and some of you guys sitting out there, you're forcers. You force your way through stuff. And if a solution's not happening, dead gummit, I'm going to make it happen. And I'm going to push my way through it. And every time we try to create our own solutions, we get hurt and we hurt others. Just like Hagar got hurt. We hurt others in our lives anytime we try to do that. It backfires. And the enemy wants to convince us. This is, this is the oldest trick in the book. And it seems so elementary, but I want you to grasp this. The enemy, the one of the greatest tricks is to try to convince us that we have control. <laughs> we don't ever, we don't have control. He wants to convince you that you are in control and that you have the last word and that you get to the final say in your life. You do not have control. God is in control. Here's what we do have, though. We have a choice. You may not have control, but you always have a choice. You almost never have control, truly. But you always have a choice. But what the enemy would love for us to think is, well, this situation is out of my control. Therefore, I have no choice in the matter. I have to respond in a certain way. I have to do a certain thing. I have to say this. I have to make this happen in my business or in my home or in my kid's life. And you don't. You always have a choice, and you can either choose to pick up control and try to do it yourself, or you can choose to submit. We always have that choice. And think about Hagar from her perspective. She, she, had, she was made to carry this burden. She was made to carry a child she didn't commit to carry. She didn't get a vote. And there's times in our lives where we walk into situations and we walk into relationships that we didn't get a vote in. And we walk into stuff that we have to deal with that somebody else created. We, are, we come from broken homes where mom and dad got divorced. We didn't create that situation. Can I say it? You didn't create that situation. 
But we have a choice. Although we don't have control, we have a choice as to how we move on from that stuff. Both Sarah and Hagar had a choice. Everybody in this room has a choice. Joy is a choice. Peace is a choice. Depression is a choice. Discouragement is a choice. Praise is a choice. David found himself by himself in a cave with nobody around him to encourage him. And he said, you know what? I am making a choice to praise. I will let praise come out of my lips, even though I have nobody else around me to encourage me. I will encourage myself in the Lord. I've got a choice. I always have a choice. I want to make a choice to rejoice. Glory to God. You know what I'm saying? But we underestimate how much choice we have. I'm talking with my hands a lot. And we overestimate how much control we have. We always get those backwards. But the truth is, we always have a choice and we never really have control. That's his. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this for all the control freaks in the room and your, your, your spouses are going to appreciate it. I'm going to say it again one more time just so you get it. You don't have control, but you have a choice. Amen? Hagar, this is funny. Hagar, quite honestly, if you look at this situation, she quite honestly had the biggest gripe of anybody. And she probably had the most legitimate gripe not to move on, just to give up and stay where she was. And what's funny is we see that she is the one that God chose to send an angel to to kind of chastise her. Uh, flip, flip to uh, the next verse there, Mikey. Check this out. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, and it was a spring that was beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. This question, God has asked this question before, hasn't he? You remember where he asked it the first time? Where, where are you? Where'd you go? Where are you going? Why are you hiding? Why are you hiding? Have you forgotten who I am? You know me. Where, where are you going? So she's, she's fleeing. She's running away. And there's this blame game happening. Sarai blamed Abram for doing what she told him to do. Can I get an amen from the husbands in the room? Honey, I did exactly what you told me to do and you're angry with me? Yes. Abram blamed Sarai, and he's the one who actually went and did the deed. And then Hagar blamed both of them, and she's probably got a legitimate gripe. But God's going, where have you come from? Where are you going? And basically, she tells God, in our modern-day terms, she said, I'm checking out. I'm checking out. This situation is beyond my control, and I'm making a choice to check out right now. That's what I'm going to do. That's my response to this situation. That's how I'm going to choose to move on. And I talked earlier about how forcers, those of us who force, always hurt people. And it's obvious the hurt they cause because it's usually blatant and, and harsh and with, a, with an iron fist when that happens, when a forcer does something. But I want to tell you something. There's another group of people called fleers, and it hurts equally as much when they choose to move on in the wrong way. What about the dad who never says anything about his frustration and the next thing you know, he walks out on his family? Or the employee who is so frustrated and they just let it boil and boil and they never talk about it and the next thing you know, they just quit. And they go from place to place to place to place quitting 
because they're fleeing from the problem, and that causes just as much destruction in relationship as a forcer causes. Both of them are detrimental. If you choose to move on by forcing or fleeing, people get hurt, and you, don't, you miss what God has for you. None of this was Hagar's fault. God didn't say, Hagar, what's the matter with you? Why didn't you do what I told you to do, you big idiot? All he said was, through this angel, where have you come from and where are you going? Why are you fleeing? Why are you running away? Verse 9, check this out. Here's what the angel said, as if that wasn't hard enough for Hagar to swallow. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go Go back. Oh, my gosh. Go back. Can you believe the angel said that? Go back to your mistress and submit. That's a hard word to say, isn't it? Submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Hagar's got another choice, doesn't she? She's got another opportunity right here. Go back. Go back. Go back to my misery. Go back to the situation that I am running from. Did you see how she treated me, God? Did you hear what she said to me? Do you remember what they asked me to do? Not asked me what they told me to do? And you want me to go back there? Yeah. I need you to go back because I've got something back there for you. And I just need you to go back and pick it up. I need you to go back to your misery for a moment. Pastor Justin, so you can get your miracle. Go back to your misery so you can get your miracle. It's like, what? There's something waiting for you back there. Now, I'm not sitting here telling you, run back to your abusive situations. That is not what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm saying is, there are situations that you know God is walking you through, and you checked out a little bit early. You know it. I don't have to tell you. The Holy Spirit's great at doing his job. But go back and figure out what miracle is waiting for you if you will walk through that. If you go back and submit, I'm gonna give you a success you could never make up on your own. If you move on the way that I've commanded you, you're gonna get blessed in ways that you couldn't dream up by yourself. Hagar, go back. I'm gonna increase your descendants so much they'll be too numerous to count. The only way we can move on is by truly laying down our own way and picking up God's way. It's not just enough for us to even just lay down our way. We have to pick up what God is telling us to do. And I want to share something with you from this this little chunk of Scripture right here. Sometimes moving on looks like sitting still. And sometimes moving on even looks like, it looks like going backwards. But God is doing something. And we have to trust who he is. If he's walking us into situations and relationships, we've got to know he's doing it for a reason. That thing that you know God's called you to, that place or that person that God has called you to serve or that dream that he put in your heart years ago and that creative spirit that you have that he's stirring up within you and you just feel stupid when it happens, don't shut that stuff down. Go back. Go back to that place and figure out what it is. Go back to the pain and find out what your purpose is. Go back. Move on. 
Now, I want to show you something really, really cool about God. And you're going to hear me say this every single time I get up here and preach. And you're going to hear us say this a lot inside these walls. But here's what's really, really cool uh, about this account. And it's this. God is really great at restoration. <laughs> he's, really, he's really good at it. He invented it. God is really great at letting us move on even when we screwed it up by trying to move on in our own power. Did you know that 13 years later, the child of promise came? God still gave Abraham and Sarah the child of promise. They still gave, God still gave them their son. Even though they had Ishmael, they still got to have Isaac. (laughs) How many of you guys have had an Ishmael in your life, but right now you can't shut up about how good God is because he gave you an Isaac too. Woo! God still gave him Isaac. God still held true to his promise, even though Abraham and Sarah created a predicament by taking matters into their own hands, even though they already had Ishmael. And I'm gonna say it again. Abraham and Sarah got to have Isaac, even though They already had Ishmael. (laughs) Some of us stopped moving just because we've had trouble in the past. Some of us have stopped trying, and we decided not to move on. We decided to flee, or we decided to force our way into another decision because we think we've messed it up so badly. There's no point in even trying anymore because I've screwed up, and God, I've screwed up. I'm sorry, I messed up, I've just got to move on. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm sorry, and I told you this last time I preached, but I'm going to say it again to make sure you hear it. Stop telling God what he can't do. Stop telling him what he can't do. I need to hear that. Can I tell you something? If God didn't still give people Isaacs after they had Ishmaels, I wouldn't be standing here preaching to you right now. Because I did everything I could to mess up my life and mess up my calling and mess up what God had planted in my heart. I did everything I could to mess it up. But here I stand by the grace of God. I'm able to share a word with you today. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, God gives you your Isaac if you will hold on, if you will move on in what he's got you to do. He will give you the promise. This is awesome. You know, what, you know what Isaac's name means? Does anybody know? Laughter. <laughs> Isaac's name means laughter. Here's what I love about this, this account right here. Abraham and Sarah messed up bad, did everything they could to mess it up. But what's funny is God always gets the last laugh. <laughs> God gets the last laugh. Here comes Isaac. Watch out. Laughter. It's on its way. I'm giving you the promise that I told you I was going to get you. Move on. You still get hope. You still get joy. You still get purpose. You still get fullness. You still get love. You still get laughter if you will move on into what God's called you to do. And I'm talking about people who failed miserably time and time again. People who at one point in their life sinned on purpose. I'm talking about a team of disciples that Jesus ran with and built his ministry around that were screw-ups. But they got a chance to move on. (laughs) He takes our mistakes and he crafts those in and uses them for a purpose. And then he changes our name. 
You know, they were called Abram and Sarai before, and God changed their name to Abraham and Sarah because it fit the purpose that they were about to fulfill. Let me tell you something right now. You might have labeled yourself or somebody might have labeled you loser or deadbeat or lazy or a failure or you're a bad dad or you're a bad mom or you're a bad boss or you're a terrible employee or you're a failure never going to amount to anything. I want to tell you something. God is into changing names. God changes names. He changes situations, and he changes outcomes if we'll let him, if we choose to move on in his way. I'm out of time, but I, gotta, I don't want to leave this part out. Forgive me, Sunday school teachers. Forgive me. Real quick, this is how cool God is. It gets even cooler, and I didn't realize this until the other day, but this is really, really neat. All right, so... After Abraham goes on, and, and he has his son Isaac, right? And then he has, uh, and then Isaac has Jacob to follow him, and then there's a guy named Joseph, all right? So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all right? So we are, this is Joseph's great, great granddaddy Abraham, or whatever, great granddaddy Abraham, all right? So there's this guy named Joseph. His brothers sell him into slavery, he's in a pit. All right, his life is falling apart seemingly, all right? And he's sitting there, and there's a scripture that I'll do a better job and throw it up next service because I didn't think I could get to this, but this is so cool. We see in Genesis, Jacob's in a pit, and it looks like everything's done, and his life looks like it's over. And this is the guy who's supposed to lead God's people. He's supposed to have a big part to play in the plan that God has for his people. And so he's in a pit, and looks like no escape. And the next thing you know, we hear about a caravan heading down to Egypt. Now, he's got to get down to Egypt. Joseph has to get down to Egypt. But he's in a pit. He's not getting to Egypt. Well, this random caravan decides to pass by the pit that Joseph's in. And it was a caravan of Ishmaelites. A caravan of Ishmaelites. Now, let me back up and refresh your memory. Ishmael is the kid that Abraham and Sarah were never supposed to have created, but they did it anyway. But here comes the Ishmaelites, the people that were descendants of the kid that was never supposed to happen, come and get Jacob out of a pit, I'm sorry, Joseph out of a pit so that he can get back to Egypt to fulfill God's purpose for his people. What? Did you realize that? Come on. This is who God is. He uses, he uses the Ishmaels in our lives to help accomplish his purpose for future generations because he's that good. <laughs> God always gets the last laugh, amen? Amen? It's time to move on. Trust him because there is always a plan. And we don't have to know every jot and tittle of the plan for our lives. We just have to trust him. And we have to submit. We don't force and we don't flee. We wait on the Lord. Amen?